0: I've always kind of maintained that the the Lords of Chaos case has has really changed the area. It kind of, I think it took it from a small town mentality, a small town uh, feel to more of a, oh my God, anything can happen here type place. And I think it really did change the area.
2: That's retired prosecutor Randy McGruther discussing how the 1996 killing of a band teacher by a group of teens forever transformed the city of Fort Myers. The details of that murder case, one of the highest profile cases to come out of Southwest Florida, are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss criminal charges that recently have been leveled against two elected officials, a West Central Florida County Commissioner and a South Florida mayor. The commissioner was arrested on prostitution related charges while the mayor was accused of public corruption. Later, I'll talk about the murder of high school band leader Mark Schwebees, who was killed on his front doorstep 22 years ago today in Fort Myers. One teen knocked on his door while another, armed with a shotgun and wearing a ski mask, waited in the dark. The shotgun-wielding teen shot Schwebees seconds after he opened the door. In all, four teens were charged in the murder. They were members of the militia group called the lords of chaos among my special guests for that episode will be randy mcgruther who prosecuted the case as well as former fort myers news press justice reporter peter Francisquina and retired news press columnist sam cook coming up the story of the two criminally charged politicians
0: just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any
1: Mayor Haney is innocent of these charges. We look forward to challenging these accusations, and that's all they are right now, just accusations. In court, where we'll, everything will come out, and I believe at the end of the day, she'll be fully vindicated. Thank
3: you. Is there any Excuse me.
2: That was defense attorney Lynn Fuhrer, who is representing Boca Raton Mayor Susan Haney. The mayor spent more than two hours in a Palm Beach County jail before posting $12,000 bond. A group of reporters was waiting for her Tuesday as she left the jail with her attorney. Two days later, she appeared in a West Palm Beach courthouse to be arraigned on four felonies related to a public corruption investigation. The 62-year-old Haney was charged with three counts of felony official misconduct and one count of perjury. She also was charged with misdemeanor counts of official misuse of office, corrupt misuse of official position, and failure to disclose voting conflicts. The Palm Beach Post reported that bank records were subpoenaed by the state attorney's office that revealed earnings of $335,000 that Haney never reported on disclosure forms. One-third of that income came from the largest private commercial landowner in the city, a by the name of James Batmassian. The Post also reported that Haney's income was collected while the mayor took votes that afforded the landowner a special financial benefit. In all, 12 votes by Haney were documented that benefited Batmassian and his business. In turn, they benefited Haney, based on the allegations. The investigation also revealed that for three years, Haney reported no income from businesses or properties she and her husband owned, including a property management company based in Boca, a software engineering company based in Nevada, and a Key Largo condo she'd rented out. Haney has publicly denied receiving any money from Batmassian, even after a Post story exposed a financial link between the two. The Post also reported that Batmassian served eight months in prison in 2009 for tax evasion. If convicted, Haney faces up to 23 years in prison. Her fellow council members have urged her to resign. But Haney, a Republican, has not resigned her seat. She did, however, bow out of the Palm Beach County Commission race. On Friday, a spokeswoman with Governor Rick Scott told me that Scott is reviewing the case. He has the power to remove or suspend Haney. Also on Friday, Scott's spokeswoman notified me that he has suspended Hernando County Commissioner Nick Nicholson, who was arrested April 19th on allegations that he had sex with a stripper in exchange for room, board, and drugs. The 71-year-old Nicholson was arrested April 19th on one count of operating a location for the purpose of lewdness or prostitution and two counts of purchasing services from a person engaged in prostitution. On Tuesday, Nicholson's fellow commissioners stripped him of his vice chairmanship and agreed to send a letter to the governor's office asking that Nicholson be suspended. Nicholson's arrest this month wasn't the first time he had been embroiled in accusations of misdeeds involving a stripper. In 2012, he was investigated for his relationship with another woman employed at one of the gentlemen's clubs along US-19 in West Pasco County. Those allegations came to light a few years later, but Nicholson, a Republican, still won re election in 2016. Fellow Commissioner Jeff Holcomb addressed the Nicholson scandal during a public meeting Tuesday. He said the spate of news stories about Nicholson's charges has threatened to sabotage the county's reputation. He also brought up the first investigation into Nicholson, which was leaked to the media in early 2015.
4: So now, three years later, almost three years exactly, we're in a very similar situation with a, with a similar incident. This time it, there was an arrest involved. This stretches to the Daily Mail, Miami Herald, to the New York Post, and on the Drudge Report. And what this board has been focused on and been very successful at, especially in the last few years, is growing this county. So now when you go to Google Hernando County, you see mugshots. This is what you see. So it's, it's very unfortunate. We get painted with a broad brush. I know the four of us have been, we're all called various names on social media because it's our fault. It's not our fault.
2: Holcomb said he stepped up and urged Nicholson to resign in 2015. He wished others had done the same.
4: I asked him to, you know, to acknowledge his, his issues and, and, and show some respect to this board and step down. He did not do that. They told
2: me I was all by myself back in September of 2015. A reporter with the Tampa Bay Times knocked on Nicholson's door more than a week ago. The woman who answered the door told the reporter she had served for months as Nicholson's sex slave. She went on to say that the 71-year-old Nicholson had preyed upon her, took advantage of her vulnerability, and behaved the same way with other women like her. The woman said Nicholson had met her at work and begged her for months to move in with him, promising her very large sums of money in exchange for sex. The woman had a husband, but Nicholson was persistent. Eventually, both the woman and her husband moved in with Nicholson. And Nicholson, according to the Times article, paid them $100 on Tuesdays and $200 on Saturdays so that he could have sex with a woman. Another woman also made the same allegations, and at one point, both of those women simultaneously lived in Nicholson's house. A neighbor of Nicholson's also told the Times that day after day, cars, even limousines, would pull up to Nicholson's home and both women and men would come in and out of the house. Since the news broke about Nicholson's arrest, the commissioner who has expressed himself the most to the media has been John Alaco. He said during last week's commission meeting that Nicholson has no other choice but to resign.
3: We can't do anything besides send a letter to our governor. However, uh, Commissioner Nicholson can do something and he could resign on his own and I would encourage him to do so and have done so.
2: Nicholson has not spoken to the media since his arrest, but he did send a letter to Governor Scott. He asked that the governor suspend him effective July 17th, the day after the deadline to put his seat on the ballot this year. Nicholson, in his letter, admitted to causing embarrassment to the community, but assured the governor he was seeking counseling and was under the care of a doctor. Scott decided to suspend him immediately. In an email to me, a spokeswoman with the governor's office called the charges against Mr. Nicholson, quote, disturbing and unbecoming. The suspension means the governor can appoint a new commissioner to finish Nicholson's term, which expires at the end of 2020. Coming up, the story of the Lords of Chaos.
0: Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, Something that uh, you know, people who who had a tie to the area for a long time were shocked that that could something like that could happen there. You know, the murder of a, of a really beloved teacher. Um, and you know, basically, crime spree by these these kids. You know that that could really happen in in Fort Myers or Lee County. It just wasn't that type of place. And I think for people who had come from other areas and and uh, saw that, uh, they may have been perhaps more used to that sort of thing. But I, I, you know, I think their dreams of coming to a pristine environment may have been I won't say shattered, but at least uh, they realized that you know it's really no different than than. Place
2: else. That was Randy McGruther. He prosecuted the members of the teen militia group, the Lords of Chaos. On the night of April 30th, 1996, that group took the life of Riverdale High School band director and Marine Corps veteran Mark Schwebe. The victim was shot once in the face by a shotgun. Then he was shot a second time in the pelvic region. A neighbor who heard the shots and a car pull away called 911. The car had a noisy muffler. That's all detectives had to go on for a while. McGruther, who prosecuted homicides in Florida's 20th Judicial Circuit, recalls that first meeting his office had with detectives following the murder.
0: Just remember hearing that this uh, school teacher had been murdered as, in his front door. I believe we had a meeting the next morning. Uh, I think at the sheriff's department, uh, some of the people had been working on the, the case had, had gotten together and were briefed on it. I believe first they they didn't know uh, um, you know he was single. Uh, they thought it may have been possibly a you know a triangle type situation or something of that nature. You know, they really didn't know. They're just trying to to take what they could from the crime scene. He had been shot once in the in the head, and then uh, he was shot in the buttocks as he as apparently after he fell to the ground. And I think uh, they tried to think. You know, if, if that was related to, uh, to possible motive.
2: It took only a couple days before law enforcement got a tip from a female acquaintance of one of the fringe members of the militia. The shooter, Kevin Foster, bragged about what he did, and his friend bragged to the female. There's a basic rule of thumb when it comes to homicide investigations. Killers who work alone have the best chance of getting away with it as long as they keep quiet and don't leave a lot of evidence behind. The odds decrease with every additional accomplice because there's a greater chance someone with knowledge of the crime will talk. There were four core members of the Lords of Chaos. That number doubled when you included the less fanatical members. Foster was bound to get caught. He wanted to become infamous. Foster was born in Amarillo, Texas. He was eight years old when his family moved to Fort Myers in Riverdale Estates across from the high school. They didn't stay for long. Foster's mom and whoever her husband was at the time defaulted on the mortgage and moved into a mobile home in Canyon, Texas, just south of Amarillo. By the time Foster entered the first grade, he had lived in five states and had three different fathers. The family eventually made it back to Fort Myers and found a house on Lorraine Drive, a step down from the Riverdale house they had years earlier, but it was a step up from the Canyon Trailer Park. While in middle school, Foster was a straight-A student, but he changed after he got to high school. He liked girls, guns, and goofing off. His grades plunged. Foster's mother was named Ruby. She was more like the cool mom, or at least she tried to be. She was more a friend as opposed to an authority figure. Foster's last stepfather owned a pawn shop, so he would sometimes work there. When Foster was 14, he got a shiny new shotgun for Christmas. It was a gift from his mother. His gun collection would grow after that. In March 1994, Foster, who had always been careless with his firearms, accidentally shot himself in the stomach with one of his handguns. The bullet exited through his stomach and lodged in the mattress. He was rushed to the hospital. Law enforcement is always called whenever a patient goes to the hospital for a gunshot wound. The Lee County deputy who responded then wound up being one of the lead detectives who would investigate Foster years later for murder. After the accidental shooting, the father of Pete Magnati prohibited his son from hanging out with Foster. He thought Foster was a dangerous influence. Magnati had always defied authority. He didn't listen to his father. He worshipped Foster. He even called him God. Pete McNoddy was born in California to a Filipino mother and a World War II veteran father. When his father retired, the family decided to move to a quieter place. They chose Lee County, Florida. McNoddy was two years old at the time. They lived near the Fosters. The two boys, who were one year apart, became fast friends after Foster moved back to Fort Myers. Magnotti's IQ was 153. He was exceptionally gifted, but an erratic student. He either lacked an attention span or interest or both. He found himself in the gifted program, but he challenged his teachers. Magnotti saw Foster as a big brother at a time when he really needed one. McNaughty never felt as though he fit in. Fort Myers was a country town and McNaughty felt like an outcast. He was half-Asian, skinny as a rod, and he didn't look all that masculine. He sang and played the clarinet. He also loved comic books. He would later be the guy who wrote the manifestos for the Lords of Chaos. Before that, he started writing and drawing his own comic books. Even at a young age, they were pretty dark. Foster was not among those who teased Magnotti. Foster was actually his protector. Magnotti had another friend, too. His name was Chris Black. Black was short, Five feet, five inches tall, and overweight, he too was regularly teased by his peers. He and Magnotti became friends while they were in the 10th grade. They were both smart and loved comics. Black's IQ was high too, high enough for Genius level, but not at the level of Magnotti's. The two of them got along great. At first, it seemed like a perfectly healthy friendship. Black lived part of his life in Georgia. He was happier there. He was a lot less happy after his family moved to Florida when he was a teen. He clashed with his father, who was into fishing and hunting. Black became withdrawn, but he could be himself around Magnati, who eventually introduced him to God. Black liked Foster right away. It was like how a smaller, younger kid in the neighborhood gains acceptance from the bigger, older kid. Foster just had an alluring presence, but he didn't impress everyone. Derek Shields was the fourth core member of the Lords of Chaos. He didn't care for Foster, but he didn't necessarily stand up to him either. Shields was born in upstate New York. His father left by the time he was five. His grandfather died around the same time. Starving for male influences, Shields idolized his brother, who was three years older. It was his brother who got him hooked on baseball. One day, while the family was still living in New York State... A few months after his eighth birthday, Shields slipped on some ice. The BB gun he had been holding hit the ground and the pellet ricocheted off a door and struck him in the eye, blinding him. He actually was the first of two future Lords of Chaos members to get shot accidentally. Five years later, Shields got an implant lens and could see out of that damaged eye again. Eventually, the Shields family moved to rural Virginia, then later Southwest Virginia. Derek Shields older brother, Fred, died as a young adult and that permanently scarred him. Fred was murdered. Derek Shields seemed to lose his innocence after that. He also was aimless, unaware of his own potential, even though he was smart enough to get good grades by hardly trying and athletic enough to garner interest from colleges to play baseball. He started gravitating more toward Magnati and Black. They didn't have a whole lot in common, though. Magnati, for instance, loved Marilyn Manson and heavy metal. Shields liked pop music, mostly the softer stuff. He dug Mariah Carey. The Lords of Chaos was made up of Foster, Magnati, Black, and Shields. Foster was the leader. He even called himself God. Other members of the group, other than Shields, called him that, too. McNaughty was basically Foster's first mate. He was also the recruiter. He was the one who brought in Black and Shields. Four others were mainly hangers-on. Among those hangers-on were Chris Burnett and Thomas Tyrone. The Lords of Chaos got off on destruction. They thrived on hearing glass break and watching things burn. On March 24, 1996, two charred Jeep Cherokees were found in some abandoned area in Lehigh Acres. A sheriff sergeant who found them knew right away they must have been burned with some kind of accelerant, because nothing burns that intensely without it. One Jeep was so damaged that a VIN number couldn't be recovered from it. The VIN number on the second one was found, and it was called in. No record was found. That meant it was driven right off a dealer's lot. The vehicles were valued at $60,000. Foster and some of the other boys were atop some grain silos watching the Jeeps burn, and they were laughing and admiring their work. Foster thought of another way to cause havoc. He filled a soda can with brake powder. It closely resembled gunpowder. Then he attached wires and wrapped it in duct tape and left it on a shelf inside a pharmacy that was inside a Walmart Supercenter. He called the store and told an employee there was a bomb inside. He was hung up on. Then he called back and told the employee to evacuate everyone. The employee cussed him out and he hung up again. Foster called a third time and told the employee the exact location of the device. Someone eventually found it. 100 people were evacuated from the store. Cops swarmed the place. Foster was doing all this while his mother was out of town, but it wouldn't have mattered. He didn't slow down following her return. The gang of misfits broke car windows outside churches and shopping centers. They opened fire hydrants. They threw objects at road signs. They saw a row of yellow taxi one night and started breaking those windows. Someone spotted them and yelled at them to stop. The boys fled in Foster's Toyota. It had a loud muffler. One night, Foster, Magnotti and Black drove by The Hut, a restaurant on Buckingham Road. The restaurant was a tourist attraction, it still exists today, and it has been in business for 44 years. But one night in April 1996, it was almost completely destroyed. The trio pulled up on the restaurant, hoping to find something to steal. Foster heard something that sounded like monkeys inside some kind of covering. A cage was underneath the covering two exotic birds, macaws, were inside the cage. Foster decided he wanted to set fire to it, intending on killing the monkeys. Some dry palm tree foliage was nearby and sprayed a flammable liquid on it and ignited it. The birds, which the patrons of the restaurant loved, cost about $3,000. The cage cost another $1,000. One of the birds died in the fire. It was after all that mayhem that the gang decided to create a name to call themselves. The Lords of Chaos. LOC for short. Foster came up with it. Here is MacRuther telling me what the LOC's basic mission was.
0: It was basically that they were going to wreak havoc and... uh you know, commit crimes throughout the area and, and try to, to create fear in the in the citizenry.
2: What they had done up to that point wasn't enough. Burning the restaurant and killing the fifteen hundred dollar macaw didn't seem to evoke the kind of fear Foster wanted or the media attention. Foster came up with a bigger idea. The date April nineteenth loomed large in his brain. That was the third anniversary of the Waco Siege. That was the one-year anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. It wasn't until after midnight, April 20th, that the crew carried out Foster's master plan. They packed ten propane tanks, which of course were stolen, into a pickup truck and headed toward an old vacant Coca-Cola plant. Six of them took part that night, including all four of the core members of the LOC. Foster, McNati, Black, and Shields. They sneaked into the building. They turned the knobs on all the tanks. A flash bomb would go off and ignite the propane, effectively destroying the building. The flash mob was made of a Pepsi can, and Foster was proud of that irony. The bomb was set, The hissing of the tanks could be heard by Black, who was watching guard by the getaway vehicle across the street. They all ran out of the building, got into the truck, and drove to a park where they could still see the plant. In roughly 12 minutes, there was an explosion. Glass shards were projected onto US-41. The boys sat on a picnic table and watched the fire grow bigger and bigger. The 911 call came in at 4.19 a.m. The Coca-Cola plant was a total loss. Foster got the media attention he wanted. Now he had to figure out how to top that. Ten days later, Mark Schwebes was leaving Riverdale High School shortly before dusk. He noticed a couple of people hanging by the payphone. He drove by to see whether they were students who needed a ride home or maybe were waiting for a ride. The two students were Chris Black and Tom Tyrone. Tyrone was one of the lesser associates of the LOC. Shields, Magnati, and a couple others were far enough away where Schweebies couldn't see them, but they watched as Schweebies pulled up in his Ford Bronco. That was around the time Foster emerged, too. He had been hiding behind a concrete pillar, all six foot three of him. Schweebies clearly saw him. Foster realized this and ran across the street and toward the woods. Schweebies called out to the two other boys and asked what they were doing. Black told them they were making a phone call. Schweebies knew the phone didn't work because it had been vandalized some time before. The boys knew that too. The LOC had vandalized it. Schwebees asked who the person was who ran across the street. Black told him he didn't know. Schweebies got out of his vehicle and saw the two boys had supplies with them: A fire extinguisher, some staples, and some canned peaches. He also noticed that Tyrone had gloves on. He asked him why he was wearing gloves. Black did all the talking. He told Schweebies, quote, "'We like to wear gloves. Is that against the law?' Schwebees confiscated everything and put it in the passenger side of his Bronco. He basically told the boys to beat it. Tyrone finally spoke up. He asked Schwebees what he planned to do with all the stuff. Schwebees looked at Black and asked whether he had seen him before. Black said no. Then he told them. They should expect to get a summons the next morning from the school resource officer, the law enforcement officer assigned to the school. Schwebees drove off. Black threw a tantrum. Black and Tyrone confronted Foster. That wasn't any more pleasant for them, especially for Tyrone. Foster read him the riot act. He also didn't trust the skinny kid enough to keep his mouth shut. He knew something had to be done. It was Black who articulated it. Somebody has to die tonight. Sam Cook was a longtime columnist for the Fort Myers News Press. He remembers the detail of that night 22 years ago from the thousands of pages of investigative reports. Here he is talking to me about that overreaction by Foster and Black.
0: How preposterous was this whole thing? Sweebies finds these two kids with gloves and cans of peaches. And they're en route to throwing the cans of peaches through the windows of the auditorium. All right? So then that's how they would break in the school and then, you know, do their vandalism. So Sweeby stops them and takes their cans away and says, expect a visit from the school resource officer tomorrow. You know, and so how much trouble are you going to get in? Because they didn't even commit the act. You know, they were stopped in time. But when they all got together that night, Chris Black was freaking out, thinking they were going to get in trouble. Then they find out about blowing up the Coca-Cola plant, burning the restaurant down.
2: Foster believed for sure that Tyrone would squeal. So he put the plan in motion. He was the brains behind it all. He got Schwebe's address by ordering Black to call 411 from a payphone. Black called the number listed for that address and listened to the outgoing answering machine message. It sounded like Schwebe's voice. It was a confirmation. During the course of the night, Tyrone decided he didn't want to proceed, and he went home. So did another LOC member, Chris Burnett. Foster didn't want those two around anyway. He didn't trust them. That left the four core members to carry out the deed. Meanwhile, Schwebe's was leaving the Cracker Barrel restaurant, where he had dinner with a band booster. Foster went home and got his shotgun. He used the type of shells he knew couldn't be traced to his weapon. Magnati, who wasn't so enthusiastic about committing murder, would be in the car. Black would be the driver. Shields would be the decoy. Foster thought he was perfect for that role. Schwebe's knew Shields. He was one of his band students. If he saw Shields through a peephole, it's more likely Schwebe's would open the door. Here is former news press reporter Peter Francisquina, who covered Foster's trial, describing to me what happened that night.
3: Kevin Foster put Derek Shields up to knocking on Mark Schwede's door, and then Kevin Foster emerged from the darkness wearing a trench coat, camouflage, and pulled the shotgun out of his trench coat, Derek Shields ran from the door, and then Kevin Foster shot Mark Sweebies once, and then when Sweebies fell to the ground, to the doorstep, he shot him again in the buttocks because he believed wrongly that he was gay.
2: Foster was a bigot. He didn't like minorities. He didn't like gays. Foster had heard from one of the LOC members that Schwebees might have been gay. When Schwebees opened the door, Shields sprinted away. Schweebies stepped outside, and the last word out of his mouth was, Who? Maybe he was about to say, Who's out there? Or, Who knocks on someone's door at 1130 at night? He never got the chance to finish that sentence shotgun pellets were fired into his face. Schwebees took his last breaths while lying face down on his front porch. Foster never had any fear about committing murder. It was almost like he was determined to do it. Much of the research I did for this podcast centered on a book written by Jim Greenhill titled, Somebody Has to Die Tonight. Greenhill worked at the news press with Francis Skina and Cook. He covered crime for the paper. He obtained more than 10,000 pages of court documents as part of his research. He was among the first journalists to cover the Schwebe's murder. Cook told me that Greenhill developed a theory about Foster while doing his research.
0: It was the theory of Greenhill that Kevin Foster wanted to kill somebody. That was his next step. When they went to Sweeby's house, I mean, Foster was, you know, at some points, dumb like a fox. He got these pellets for his Mossberg shotgun that couldn't be traced. So, you know, he knew what he was doing.
2: It only took a couple days before investigators got their first big lead. It came from a teenage girl.
3: After the shooting, Kevin Foster uh, ran his big mouth and was bragging about what they had done. And he was bragging to one of the other hangers-on to the Lords of Chaos. And that, that, that kid, in turn, told his girlfriend about it. And then she is the one who dropped the dime on that. She called the police and said, hey, my boyfriend knows he did this murder. And the cops picked that boyfriend up, and then he rolled on everybody else.
2: The sheriff of Lee County at the time was John McDougall. It was a job he kept for 12 years. McDougall was open about his Christian faith and had an Old Testament approach to punishing criminals. The LOC was dismantled and all of the members were arrested. The Corps members were charged with murder and detectives were able to link the vandalism and arson to the entire group. McDougal pulled no punches during his first press conference, especially when he turned his attention to Foster. Cook kept his notes from McDougal's press conference.
0: He was quite a character. He was uh, very religious, and he was pretty popular because he always spoke his mind. And this was no different. You know, he went right after Kevin Foster. They had previously killed birds, and they torched a church, and they blew up the Coca-Cola building. So their crimes were getting, you know, more serious. Then, McDougall said, all was culminated in the murder. He was, he being Foster, was such a magnet. The guy called himself God. He had such a great pull on these other wannabes that they were orbiting around him. He had the weapons, no parental control, no curfew. He was like the big man on campus, even though he wasn't on campus.
2: Foster was a high school dropout. Detectives also found out about crimes that Foster wanted to commit, but never carried out. One of those crimes was a mass shooting at Disney World.
0: And then there was this other thing that there was a grad night at Disney World, and he wanted to go up there with guns and open fire on the black kids. It was a racist thing on Foster's part. He said they were punk kids. You're seeing a microcosm today trench coat mafia. It would have been like a Columbine massacre at Disney World.
2: Columbine wouldn't happen for another three years. Foster gave detectives a glimpse of the kind of deranged person who would commit such killings. The kinds that have plagued society for the better part of 20 years. During the LOC crime spree, Foster demanded loyalty. For the most part, he got it. Shields didn't care for him, but he followed him. McNaughty and black admired him. But after they all got arrested, Foster's three closest allies flipped on him. Magnotti was the first.
0: 158 IQ and a great artist. A lot of things going for him. And he was second in command. You know, he was Kevin's best friend. He, you know, it's the same old thing. He who flips first gets the best deal and they went to magnati because they know sometimes magnati had clashed with uh, foster and i think magnati was against killing sweeties
2: magnati's offer was 32 years none of the others was offered anything less than life in prison even Foster was offered life. If he didn't take it, he'd face the death penalty if convicted at trial. He didn't take it. McGruther told me that none of Foster's associates had any choice but to accept their plea offers.
0: Well, it's a matter of here's what the evidence is, here's what we have, and uh, you, know, you have a choice. You can go to trial, or you can plead to the charges, and and testify and that becomes their choice at that point the evidence was was strong enough that they they took the, the route of uh, entering a plea uh, and uh and testify
2: Foster was tried in March 1998, nearly two years after Schwebe's murder. Francis Skina covered each day of the trial and told me that Shields, Black, and McNaughty all testified to Foster's involvement. They were willing witnesses. Francis Skeena told me that each of them brought a little something different to the story. They were specific about how they started committing petty crimes, and then upgraded to destruction of property, and then arson, and then murder. It seemed all along that Foster was hell-bent on murdering someone. That's what McGruther told me.
0: He is just uh, an evil person. Never showed any remorse. Um, he was—he was. I won't say ecstatic, but he was certainly happy about you know, when he indicated that uh, he had blown uh, Mark Schweby's face away. You know, uh, that sort of person is just—it's it's pretty incomprehensible how how evil he can be.
2: It wasn't just Foster who left a lasting impression on McGruther. Foster's family, in particular his mother, Rudy, and his sister, Kelly, attended the trial. They showed no restraint. They freely expressed their disdain for the prosecution. McGruther succinctly put it this way.
0: I would say that I don't think the apple fell too far from at
3: least one branch of the tree.
2: Franceschina and Cook felt the wrath of Ruby and Kelly Foster, too. Here is Franceschina describing to me their treatment of him.
3: I had all the dirty chairs and dirty books and uh, muttering and uh, everything else. Um, and I can't say that I've ever had a defendant's family treatment in that fashion
2: before or since. That bad, huh? It was not
3: crazy. None
2: of them. Kevin Foster was found guilty. During the penalty phase, Kelly Foster testified on her brother's behalf. She didn't sway jurors, who voted 9-3 to to recommend death. Cook tried to get a quote from Kelly Foster outside the courtroom. Uh,
0: yeah, Kelly. This came at a bad time for Kelly because she had applied for a job with the Collier County Sheriff's Office. You know, I, I made an attempt to always try to talk to, the family members regardless of you know they, they hated me but you know so what? was so you know Kelly was coming out and this was after I think they they were all all got up there and lied and said you know Kevin was home all night and he was on the telephone from 1130 to midnight when Sweebies was killed and you know it's just ridiculous so I asked kelly you know did she have any comment or something and she told me to drop dead and it it was a perfect setup for the end of my column
2: this was the last line of cook's column the one that came after kelly ordered him to drop dead quote with any luck not before your brother foster was 18 at the time of the killing and he still remains on death row Cook told me that he thinks Foster, an admirer of Timothy McVeigh's, is exactly where he belongs.
0: He was made for the death penalty. I mean, you know, this guy, this this guy was evil. You know, he's diabolical. He was going to kill somebody sooner or later. And the fact that he was only... 18, I guess he was. That that was irrelevant. You know, he had that Mossberg shotgun, and you know, that was, he loved the whole reason he set up this floor to chaos, I think, was so that they could they reach the ultimate prize, and that was Kevin killing somebody.
2: Jim Greenhill interviewed Kevin Foster while in prison. He would drive there, accompanied by Foster's mother, Ruby. He was the one journalist who actually elicited kindness from the Foster family. Greenhill was English-born, so he had an accent and a gentlemanly charm. He earned the trust of the Fosters. In the end, they got way too comfortable with him. Kevin Foster confessed to Greenhill after years of insisting he was nowhere near Schwebe's home the night of April 30th, 1996, that he was, in fact, the murderer. But it doesn't stop there. Foster asked Greenhill to murder three witnesses, three associates of the LOC. By killing them, Foster said, he'd have a greater chance at winning his appeal. Ruby Foster got into the act, too. She gave Greenhill a shotgun and suggested he cover the bodies with lime to prevent animals from digging them up. She added a fourth name to the hit list, too. Greenhill went to the state attorney's office. When Cook learned about all of this, he couldn't believe it.
0: I don't know how many copies he sold, but this was a career maker and, you know, he had that, the inside track and, you know, what, what, what reporter does that ever get asked to kill three people, you know, and then, you know, decides to do the right thing and goes to the state attorney. Can you imagine what the state attorney's office thought when he walked in there? <laughs> With that news,
2: did he ever tell you whether they believed him or whether they were like, "Come on, don't waste my time"? What was?
0: Oh what was no, the
4: they believed him.
0: Yeah, he, never, he, I doubt if he ever had contact with Kevin or Ruby again.
2: After he went to the state attorney's office, investigators put a wire on Green Hill. Then he got Foster and his mother on tape, saying several incriminating things. Both were later convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. Ruby Foster was sentenced to four years in prison, and Kevin Foster had four years tacked on to his death sentence. Greenhill, in his book, stated, quote, "...the full story of what happened between Kevin Foster and me would fill another book." In the end, the one defendant who might deserve some sympathy is Derek Shields. Foster was the shooter. Black came up with the idea of committing murder and showed no signs of remorse even years after he was sent to prison. McNaughty stayed in the car, but he got 32 years and is scheduled to be released from prison in July 2023, at which time he'll be 44 years old. But Shields had the most to lose, and he lost it all. He was the one who didn't care for Foster. So, why did he follow him? Foster had promised him and convinced him that he would be the one who could help him get revenge for Shields' brother's murder. Shields remains incarcerated at Hardy Correctional Institution in Bowling Green. He is not eligible for parole. In Greenhill's book, he said he had reached out to Schwebe's family to apologize for what he did. Shields also reached out to Cook.
0: He was a good kid, and he said he never called Foster God, He never believed in him, this and that, you know, he was just kind of long for the ride. But it was a good letter, you know, he wrote to me, and he was mad at me because, you know, I... I questioned the sincerity of his apology, but he said that, you know, when they asked him if he was sorry, he said yes, you know, and then he said, I just froze, I couldn't say anything else. So, you know, I, I think I called him in one of those columns, you know, the the least criminal of of the Lords of Chaos members.
2: Even the man tasked with putting him behind bars agreed with me about how easy it was to feel some sympathy for Shields.
0: I don't disagree with you at all. Uh, Of the the three, he is definitely the... uh, I think he was the most remorseful, for sure, uh, after. You know, Chris Black had the think uh, the statement he made at one point or, you know, hey, we're just changing you know, what are they trying to do to us type but, but he did not show remorse. Kevin Foster obviously didn't. Uh, I think Derek Shields um uh, Was very remorseful. Uh, Here's kid. He was a he was a a good student. He was a a, a very good baseball player. Apparently, he had a lot in in, ahead of him. Uh, He had a scholarship already to I forget where. I think it might have been uh, Embry Riddle over by you over in that direction. Uh, He was you know he was going places. He was a decent kid, and he fell under the the sway of Kevin Foster and just kind of you know. along with everything that the group was doing. And, uh, yeah, is there sympathy for him? Yes, I do have a certain degree of sympathy for him.
2: But in the end, Shields played an active role in a premeditated murder.
0: But he was also the guy that set up Sweeby's death, you know? That door probably wouldn't have opened without him.
2: Foster remains on death row at Union Correctional Institute in Rayford. Even though I revealed a major spoiler in Greenhill's book, I would still encourage anyone who'd like to learn more about the Lords of Chaos case to check out Someone Has to Die Tonight. It's available on Amazon.com. Thank you for listening. Join me next week. When I will discuss a robbery turned murder inside a Daytona Beach Taco Bell, which occurred 26 years ago, two brothers, ages 16 and 18, shot three people and stabbed another. All four were employees at the restaurant and one of the victims, a 17 year old female was killed. My special guest next week will be Daytona Beach News Journal justice reporter Frank Fernandez. Join us then.
1: You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.
0: Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any
1: type of uh, human remains that are left.